I've been on Mexico City in a while. You need to come uh, down here, man. It's epic. Oh, dude, we I've been. We played down there. You know what's fun? Yeah, no, I've had some fun there. I can't get into details, but <laughs> it's wild shit. Well, I want to hear all about it. I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, thank you for coming on the show. This is super exciting, man. I appreciate oh, you. So, you know, I want to start out with your name because I think that's been an entry point. You know, Hollywood Dead has ultimate iconography, you know, and I want to know about your name specifically. How was that derived initially? Well, actually, uh, the first band that we ever started, me and a couple of the dudes from Hollywood Undead, was called Three Tears. That was the name of the band. Okay. And I was the singer in the band, so I used to call myself Johnny Three Tears. I think we were 17, 18 wow. years old. It was a really long time ago, so um, we did that band, other bands, you know, the same kind of thing that everybody does, nothing worked. When we started Hollywood Undead, I used the name because uh, we wanted to... At first, you know, we, we wanted to, we were talking some shit about uh, things from where we were from, and we kind of thought it would be good to, like, you know, for people not to know who we were at first, I guess. Um, and that was part of it. So we used moniker, so I just used Johnny Three Tears because I had used it from our days in Three Tears. Okay, fair enough. So let's talk about those initial years before Hollywood Undead. You grew up in Los Angeles. So yeah, Glass spent- Park. Wow. So you spent a big chunk of your life in California. So let's just talk about your early years, just getting into music, your formative years. I'd love to hear you speak to that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was born in South LA. Uh, for us, yeah. I mean, how did we, we all, I met all the dudes. So I mean, really before I can remember, cause we all went to the same preschool. We all grew up in the same area and ended up wow. in the same kindergarten and uh what's like what comes after that i guess it's elementary school it's been a while yep. <laughs> um so we ended up all in the same school and we became friends we all lived in la um and uh you know just through those friendships as time started going forward um we were we were troublemakers and stuff like that and we came from pretty rough area so like i think as we got into our teens early teens we kind of you start going um well everybody wanted to get out of the situation they were in. So all of us kind of took stock of like uh, what the possibilities were. We were all, you know, we didn't have any money and most of us were already becoming criminals, which we still became some of us. But at that point it was kind of like, how do we get out of here? The situation in music was kind of the only thing we didn't need any We I knew what we were, none of us were going to college. I, I actually wanted to join the military, but then I got a felony when I was 15 and they don't let you join, even if you have felonies as a minor. Well, wow. so I knew that was out the window. So I was like, okay, uh, that's kind of leaves that one option. So we started playing together, doing music, um, you know, off and on this guy, we'd be in bands together, then quit, you know, you're kind of running through the mill of bands and this works for a little bit. Then that doesn't in your drummers and like seven other bands. Cause there's like two of them in the whole neighborhood. And, um, you know, we just kind of ran through different conglomerates and then, um, three tiers. Like I said, that was probably my, our first serious band where we like played and, you know, we played the Hollywood circuit, the whiskey and the Roxy and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, we ran through that gamut and then, um, all of us clicked up. We wanted to do something with more hip hop influence rock at that point, um, was I don't know. It wasn't our thing anymore, really. There were some bands. I love the Deftones and some of the bands out, but 
a lot of it was kind of steering more into the what I would say, you know, like the the middle America, the talk rock type shit. Sure. Um, I was just not into that. So we kind of, you know, we grew up grew up in L.A. and hip hop was kind of a big focus of ours. So that was kind of how Hollywood Undead started is we wanted to do uh, hip hop stuff. And at that point, I think all of us, had, at least to some degree, given up on the idea of being professional musicians, um, especially at that time period. This is pre, um, you know, Spotify. You couldn't just put your music out. There was no place to put it. Um, so at that point, you you certainly needed kind of the gatekeepers, the labels and things like that. And we didn't have any of those things. Um, so we kind of had resigned ourselves. So we made Hollywood Undead as kind of just, well, let's just do music because we want to do it. And we were able, the reason it was so different is Hollywood Undead was essentially what we would do without any expectation. When before you're going, okay, we need to sound like this, or this band's doing this, or this is what people want, or that's what is out there. Hollywood Dead, we had no intention of ever doing it professionally, so we just did what we wanted, and that's kind of why it was so off the wall. That's pretty wild. So I just want to jump right into Hollywood Undead in that case, because to your point, there was no standard operating procedure for Hollywood Undead. And that's why I think, of course, the band achieved this great iconography that sticks with me, of course, to this day. If you could just get right into what that process of Hollywood Undead, as you guys evolved and started gaining popularity, what that whole experience was like. Because I remember the, the time right around MySpace when this started mm -hmm. to occur, and I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah, I mean, that it kind of took us all by surprise because we had been trying to get in the offices with, of labels and for years, you know, to no avail. And we had done, you know, um, industry listening. People would come and our guys would come and we just never had any any luck, probably because we sucked for the most part. But, you know, it, it's it's a really tough industry to get in. And so Hollywood Undead was very reactionary to that. Half of our songs were talking shit about the record industry and yeah. these people. And um, it was really more of a like a fuck you to them. The irony is once we put it out, within a few months, all of them wanted to sit down with us, which is odd because the whole message was fuck you people. Hey, let's have lunch now. It's like, what? <laughs> and it, it really was a kind of backwards. So all of this took us completely like off guard. None of us thought mm. this was happening. And then, yeah, we were like sitting down with Atlantic and Jimmy Iovine and Interscope, who we ended up signing with and Electra and all these different labels and one would offer us money, one would offer us more. And it was, it was, it was fucking bizarre. Cause I remember at that point, um, you know, most of us just sold drugs to make money, you know, we'd trap and stuff like that. Oh. So we were doing nasty shit to get by. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was kind of surreal. Look, look, you can't play piano right now. Can you go hang out with Sissy? Yeah. I just okay. And I'll be out in a minute. Um, so yeah, it, it caught, I mean, yeah, no one expected it, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it, it, was, it was fucking bizarre, dude. Even thinking about it now, it's kind of surreal, because I remember we got signed to Interscope, and they gave us a bunch of money, or at least which was a bunch of money in my mind at that point. Of course. Um, and we went down to the business manager's office, and each of us got like three grand cash, because um, none of us had bank accounts, and we all went to like Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, and like went to buy some clothes, you know, the typical shit, but... It was for us. I had never done that in my life, and um, you know, it, it was cool. And of course, within six months, we spent it all, and we were broke again, uh, like everybody. <laughs> I should have known what Fifty Cent did and bought a bunch of blow and flipped it. Instead, <laughs> I blew it. But it was fun, man. And you know, it was really it was surreal because it wasn't like it, there was like a 
a slow ascent to this. It was nothing and then everything. And it was kind of like none of us saw it coming. So it really was pretty, pretty crazy, man. Well, that's an interesting juxtaposition because I want to get more into your personal story as it pertains to basically transitioning from Juvenile Hall to founding Hollywood Undead. But before we go there, Hollywood Undead, you really did walk the line of mainstream and alternative. And I want to speak to what your relationship was like to the alternative music scene during the MySpace days. Did you, because you guys did become in your own right, very popular in the MySpace scene right. community. And well, I'm wondering. Like, go ahead. Go. Sorry, dude. Oh, no, that's it. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Well, to be honest, I mean, none of us knew what this stuff was at that point. So we were making music and bands. I didn't, I've ne I didn't even have a MySpace account. I didn't, I was never like into that shit. I'm still not. Um, but that's where bands put their music. Every band sure. was putting their music out there and they had like a kind of a modern or past day, modern day of streaming mechanism. You know, you could listen to music, you'd have a player up there and you could listen to songs. So we started putting it up there and yeah, that was so like, it's, that was kind of how word spread. I remember like the strokes who I love, they posted something about us. We're like, Whoa. And like, you know, it kind of had this sure. word of mouth type thing. And then where we were from, we were going around, um, we, we did a bunch of Hollywood dead stencils and tagged them all over Hollywood. And um, we knew everybody, at least from LA at that point, we were kind of the group. Most people in Hollywood are from elsewhere, you know, they're expats and stuff like that. Um, we were kind of the townies because we we're all from there. And that was somewhat rare, especially in our age. So we were kind of well known just because we were like the locals. We'd all grown up there when everybody else had kind of moved there uh, for one reason or another. And so, you know, just kind of people just started talking and, you know, words started getting around about us. And yeah, it, it was weird. The MySpace thing, I, I don't know exactly how that, the, the whole thing got married together. I think it's because that's where most people heard of us. But at that point, everybody had their music on MySpace. For some reason, ours just caught on on there. So maybe like the way someone might get big off SoundCloud now or something along that line. I don't know if there's a basis of comparison. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was, the whole thing was fucking weird, dude. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it got us a record deal and all this other stuff. We'd never even played a fucking show as Hollywood Undead. So it was all kind of backwards or the way it was backwards of every way I ever thought it was supposed to go. Um, especially cause when we wrote Hollywood Undead, our last expectation was commercial success that we'd never... We just said whatever we wanted and did whatever we wanted because you're like, you're no longer in the confines of like, hey, this might be successful, so we shouldn't say that or should do this. We literally just made what we wanted to make. And, you know, a lot of people loved it. A lot of people hated it, too. Um, but that was all exciting to us. You know what I mean? It didn't make a difference to us. Even now, you know, someone might, that, I've never taken any of that stuff personally, but we certainly made a mark, you know, and culture kind of went, oh, okay, well, this is new and this is something different. Um, and, you know, that's what's exciting about it. Even to this day, I think one of the reasons we're still a band and we're recording now, which will be, I think, our eighth or ninth record, we still, when we go to the studio, we don't go in with some preconceived notion of what we're going to do. We'll write, like, classical stuff. We'll do, like, a, an acoustic folk song and then some heavy gangster rap shit. And that's one of the reasons I'm probably still as engaged as I was then, whereas there's never been a, a rule book. So we just kind of have always done what we wanted for better or for worse. It's worked in our favor. It's worked against us certainly as well. Um, 
but yeah, there was never any rules or playbook or anything else. And so we just never really implemented one, which is probably why we've been through like seven managers and five labels is because they want a rule book and we just don't have one. And, you know, it kind of gets chaotic, but that's kind of where Hollywood undead lives comfortably is in the space between the norms and stuff. So, um, I didn't see it coming. Fair enough. No, I love that. Yeah, there is no rule book. And I want to speak a little bit about your personal story before we touch back on Hollywood Undead. Your transition, as I mentioned, from juvenile hall to founding Hollywood Undead, that's super unique. And I want to know in your words what that experience was like and if there's any interesting stories you can convey. Well, like I said, I was getting into a lot of trouble. I, I, you know, most of us had a fairly rough upbringing in that sense. Um, and I guess, you know, when you're in that world, there's no real, in your mind, there's not like a, a clear path out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as opposed to being like, oh, the, you know, you just get engaged and you start doing stuff you really probably shouldn't do. And then there's repercussions for those things, but they don't really matter because nothing's all that bad compared to where it, what's already happening. You know what I mean? Sure. People wonder why criminals commit crime. Well, a lot of times going to jail isn't so bad compared to what their regular reality is. That's how I felt. Like I couldn't see a doctor or something like that when I was a kid, like we didn't have any money for that. Um, and uh, so when you're in jail, you get, you get uh, free food like, and uh, you have a place to sleep every night and all these different things. So it was never all that bad to me, but yeah, you know, so I kept doing stuff I shouldn't have done. Um, and then I finally got caught on like a weapons charge, which, you know, is a big deal. And I already had all this other crap. That's why I couldn't end up being in the the military, which probably worked out for the best, but, um, you know, so I got, uh, sent to the central, which is in downtown LA central juvenile hall. Then I did went to Silmark. Then there's a place called challenger out in Antelope Valley. And so I was in there for about, um, a year and a half or Mm so. Um, and you know, I got out and honestly, my viewpoint wasn't any different. I went right back to, you know, doing whatever, but I definitely knew one thing at that point. Um, you know, when you're in there with young kids, the YAs and stuff like that, about half of them end up in prison. More than half, I would say. These guys, most of them are already gangbangers. You go to juvie, there's uh, already units, like NO units for murderers. These kids have already killed other kid, people. So they're, they're already fucked for life, you know, when they're 16. And so you see that and you really see how far these things can start to escalate. And I knew I didn't want to end up in prison. Like, that was like, okay, I can't, you know, that's when things like, I started going, okay, I got to get, get something right. Um, And we had played music prior to this. And that's kind of, I think where we started, or at least I started taking it more seriously because I really did look at it. Well, it's like, I can't do anything else now. I'm not going to go to college. Uh, They don't, I got my GED in central juvenile hall. No one's going to get, you know, I didn't have any money and they're not giving, uh, dudes like me scholarship. So music kind of became the the focus of, okay, well, how can you get out of it? And that was kind of it. And that was really what the turning point for me was, is it wasn't like I wanted to be famous necessarily, or, oh, I'm going to be a rock star. I just didn't want to go to prison. And I figured, hey, this is as good as a way. The funny thing is when you got all this money, (laughs) that's when shit really hit the fan. Because then I could buy all the blow I wanted. And, you know, and then, you know, I remember because I was a major Coke head for a long time. I would do anything really, but Coke was preferable. But if I had to, I'd smoke crack under a bridge or whatever I had to do. A terrible time. Don't do that, of course. Um, of course. But when you when you get to the point of success, A, you can afford it. And then B, it's 
it's not only okay, it's almost encouraged. We used to go and like do these morning shows mm-hmm. and we, we'd be up all still blown out of our heads, drunk mm-hmm. and just, you know, our faces look like donuts from the blow or whatever. They loved it. Mm-hmm. They thought it was the coolest thing. You know, this is fucking awesome. You know, you're at a, yeah. you're playing a show. You can't even barely walk people. Oh, that's cool. That's rock and roll or whatever. Yeah. And it's probably one of those few jobs you can have and just be the biggest fuck up in the world and not only get away with it, mm-hmm. but almost be encouraged. You know what I mean? It's it's a dangerous space for someone with my mindset. And so that's what, you know, a lot of things went off the rails and stuff uh, at that time period. And we really certainly went to uh, to degrees of excess. I'm I'm happy we're all we all we're all alive. That, that was one thing I didn't expect. And then, you know, uh, life changes, you know, and then I, I uh, rehab, jail, the whole thing. I went back to jail, blah, blah, blah. I remember when we were on our first tour, I had, they let me do the tour because our manager went to the judge and like basically showed them all the dates. So I had to report that we got done December 23rd, December 24th. I had to go into the jail to like report for that and, you know, do the few months while I was there the girl I was dating, who's my wife now, but I barely knew her then came in and she's like, Oh, I'm pregnant. That was my, that's my, she's 14 now. So I'm sitting in the, you know, the jail yard with one of those orange jumpsuits, like what the fuck? Cause you know, so that really was probably the turning point where I started getting shit together. Cause I was like, I didn't think I was fit to be a dad at that point, but I was going to be damned if I didn't do a good job of it. And wow. so that's when I like cleaned up my act and stuff like that. But it was definitely, that's as concise that's obviously a very concise overview um but for all of us in the band we all had a lot of these ups and downs and um periods where things went real bad and then you know now i think everybody kind of got to a point where um we made it through the gauntlet and now we just are here doing music and all the other shit no one we don't you know that's for, i'll leave that for the kids the youngsters to take the mantle and go to <laughs> they're going to do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's getting crazy out there. No, I think it's interesting your personal connection to the music and the songs you write. I know you mentioned the song Poor Me is deeply personal, you know, discussing mm-hmm. your battle with alcohol. Let's speak to more of that, the redemption arc of your story. I'd love to know that. Um, yeah, dude, well that is kind of an ongoing thing. I mean, I was in rehab last summer so that's one of those things that i'll probably you know deal with forever if i have to guess you know that the reason i and i tell young people this all the time you know you don't people oh i just want to try what this is like or that's like the thing is there's some people myself included is once you open that pandora's box you can get it closed but you can't seal it anymore you know there's always it's always there it's like hearing that jumanji drum all the time where you're just like, oh, fuck, I can feel it again. And so you have to be very diligent to not um, to go down. You know, you, ha- you have to actively pursue not doing it. Whereas if you don't open that can of worms, you hopefully never find out which, what who you would be with this stuff. Some people get into it and get out of it a year later. And then some people like me, it dictates the course of their life for half of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I used I would certainly the lifestyle choices I was making. So it was either, you know, you're all, you're full bore. I'm going to go to hell. And then, you know, you go for a while and you're like, I can't live like this. And that's where a lot of those poor came from was, uh, you know, reconciling with, you know, who you were and what you're becoming. You'd have these periods of clarity where 
um, you know, I'd be sober and I'd be like, I can't drink or do drugs anymore. That would last a few days. Then I'd be gone for, you know, it was just kind of this uh, yo-yo of sanity and insanity. Um, I was very lucky. And the reason I think I was lucky is I usually, I've known a lot of people who have died from ODing um, or just that from dr the world of alcohol and drugs. Um, I'm sure we all have a lot of suicide, you know, it drives people to the brink. So for my experiences with heavy users and um, people in that situation that I was in, you kind of have to hit a rock bottom to to really go, okay, I have to stop. There's, you're going to get a lot of warning signs, a lot of flashing lights. But for a lot of us, you know, jail's not enough. This isn't enough. That isn't enough. And unfortunately, a lot of times, rock bottom is death. Um, that's the real rock bottom. And unfortunately, a lot of people hit that point before they get to a level where they can turn it around without, you know, I've always wondered that um, if people, you know, when they die or this happens, do they have a, a window where they know like, oh, shit, it's all over all for this. Like, and, you know, you have this brief moment of time where you recognize what's happening. And I could imagine you're going, dude, I just threw my whole fucking life away to, to get high or whatever. Um, I was fortunate. Um because I had a rock bottom that happened and it was pretty shitty. Um, but my wife and my kid left and she had finally just said, dude, you're, you know, and I was, I was, um, so I was forced. I lost my family and that was enough pain. That was enough, like, of like a, a holy shit moment to make me go. Okay. And I, and I stopped right then. I actually moved back in with my mother because I was like, I have to get, out of these environments um, and find some kind of stability, you know, and I just, um, even after that, I still had relapses, but every time they were shorter. So I'd go off the rails for like a few days, you know, I'd go to wherever downtown or Hollywood or something, just go nuts. But I had already had kind of the realization I was never going to be, it was never going to be the way it was. And it became more seldom and they became shorter until finally, you know, just through, through time, but yeah, like I said, I was in rehab last summer because, you know, shit happens and you have those triggers. And when you deal with the stresses of life in one way for so long, it's very hard to go, oh, OK, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go meditate instead or, you know, go see my therapist or whatever the fuck. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's it's been a lot of ups and downs and all that stuff. And, you know, the poor me's and those songs are all just reflections of the, that time period. And that was certainly during that time period when things were really heavy. So, um, like I said, I'm just glad I got, I made it through it all for, you know, certainly not unscathed, but I'm here and my heart didn't explode and, uh, I have all my limbs and I never got an STD, you know, that wasn't, Hey, that's pretty good. It is now <laughs> you're, you're three for three. So I got to give you credit on that brothers. <laughs> it was wild um, times, dude. No, it was. And you'd be the perfect person to speak to. And I think a lot of people will find inspiration in this journey. I mean, as, as we talked about, you know, whether it be this pod or our affiliations separately to the creative industry, I mean, these are very common themes. We've all known was, people. You know, I used to be ashamed of this stuff. I would talk about it in music, but I would never. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of started going, you know, I obviously, I talk to a lot of kids, you know, they're, our, our fans are typically a lot younger, you know, yeah. and, um, I started taught, you know, and they would read and I started kind of getting into this. There's ones in particular that I've really gone out of my way to try that, you know, I see real potential. I see them really. So I want to help them. 
and at that point, I was like, you know, you're not, you can't really help anybody if you're going to, you know, hide all this stuff. And that almost makes it worse because then it's like taboo. Like, oh, you can't talk about this. Mm, um, interesting. Yeah. And I know people now who, who uh, are alcoholics or drug addicts and stuff. And talking about it is like, you know, you think you just brought up like uh, the most uncomfortable subject in the world. It's like, dude, like there's a lot of us. And um, there's a lot of people that might go down that road that haven't. And to me, that's kind of the responsibility of it. It's like, hey, you know, if you could steer someone away from that, like I said, once you open the box is when you find out whether you can close it again. Sure. Some, a lot of people can't. A lot of people can't. Mm. But a lot of people like me can't. And so if you can avoid ever opening it, you're going to save yourself a lifetime of heartache, not just for you, but the people around you. That's one of the things you don't realize. So later is that when you live that way, I was always like, well, it's self-destructive, but that's my choice because I'm hurting myself. There's a lot of collateral damage. That's the perfect way of describing it, collateral damage, because yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. If anybody cares about you, they're going to suffer because of you or, you know, dude, who knows what I put people through? I'm sure it was a lot. I did the whole thing where I talked to the, you know, everybody I knew well enough to apologize to, to say, look, can I make up any of this? And, you know, it took me three years for my girl to come back around and to even trust that I was serious. I was like, uh, you, you know, to ensure that I wasn't going to go do, uh, do this all over again. And, you know, cause it hurts, I'm sure. And the people will start to put up walls, dude, and bring those walls down is fucking hard. And so why? Why build them to begin with? And, um, you know, I, I'm all about people should have fun and I don't have anything against. I hang out with people who drink all the time. I don't give a fuck. Um, mm. More power to you. I, w I wish I could join you. Um, but, you know, some of us can get away with some things and some of us can't. But and people should have fun. But there's a very fine line and you don't really the demarcation zone between fun and misery is very hard to find you know, on the map. So one day you're just doing this to have a good time. And the next day you're just doing it to get through the day. And you kind of look back like, wait, when did that switch over? It's not like a, a point, you know what I mean? You, you will find fairly quickly, like, you know, that the shit hits the fan. So, you know, uh, teach their own, but yeah, man, there's a lot of great things in this world and beautiful things in this world. And a lot of wonderful creative things that you can do that, um, are worth avoiding all of that. So you can, so you can live through them. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you shared that. And I know this marks a very stark contrast to something that's so important and poignant, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the fashion and aesthetic influences of Hollywood undead, because you played such a pivotal role in that. And again, a very, very much a 180. but I want to hear your thoughts. No, yeah, no, let's lighten things up. Fuck bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think both. I think both are incredibly pertinent. No, yeah, yeah. Again, I think I think our audience in particular, if I could just reiterate, is the fact that these are such strong themes that are so pervasive, and the taboo has got to wear off. The taboo. It so I'm does. glad you opened up. Yeah. Nothing embarrassing about it. You know, I know. No. I remember because uh, now people are so much more and more aware of mental health and things. You know, for generations, yeah, you couldn't talk about that, and sure. I understand why people are still nervous about it. Like. You know, the, the guys that like post-World War II just drank that anguish away. And they saw the most yep. horrid shit in the fucking world. Yep. Stuff we couldn't even dream of. But you couldn't go and say, hey, you know, this fucked me up. You know, of PTSD course. and these things. that They had other terms, shell shock or whatever the terms were. But it was almost like cliche. Like, oh, you pussy. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, life is fucking tough. And 
it's, it doesn't spare anyone, no matter what the circumstances they're born into or not. Everybody has problems. They might be different. And everybody is going to face tragedy at some point. So there's no point pretending everybody's happy-go-lucky all the time. I hate that shit. But fashion, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an official. I'm going to tell you, be honest with you, dude. I wear sweats pretty much every day. Sure. Once I discovered the miracle of sweats... <laughs> I fucking won't put jeans on unless someone's dead or getting married or some shit. Cause I'm like, no, why, why live in a world that uncomfortable, bro? If you don't have to, of course. <laughs> well, I think, I think if we're talking about the specificity of the aesthetic and the masks, I think there's no denying the undeniable effect that that had on the iconography oh, yeah. of the band. The masks were, were awesome. I mean, when mm -hmm. we did it, the whole, you know, um, for us, it was like kind of an avenue. We we were all in a graffiti and shit like that, and um, we people would wear masks back then when you went out tagging because cops, you know, or whatever. You don't want people to see your face, of course. Um, and then it gave us another opportunity to kind of create with them and uh, create an image uh, with those. And you know, masks. You know, masks is funny because people bring up masks as far as music goes all the time. But in reality, masks have been used in performance for thousands of years. I mean, look at the, the Greek mm. tragedies and you dating back, you know, three, four thousand years ago, people were performing with masks. Um, it was always there's something very unsettling about them. Um, even now, I still get like, um, I don't know whether it triggers fear or curiosity or whatever else. It just gave another opportunity to create something to go along with the band. And it was a lot of fun. That was always one of my favorite things is we have this guy, Jerry Constantine. He does like movie props and stuff. And he's like a fucking genius. And I can't make a mask, but this guy could turn anything you could think of into reality. So that was like always one of the coolest things in the world. So, um, yeah, the mask were with the imagery of the, the mask and all that stuff. I was always married to it. It was just, um, it was one of the cooler aspects of the band. And, um, yeah, there it's there's something cool. I don't know what it is. It's hard. I think that's what's so cool about it is there. It's intangible. There's something behind that that you know is half the time they take them off and you're like, oh, it's a fucking dorky dude, you know, because they're so fucking striking. And then it's a dude with a goatee. He's got like a hot pocket sauce in his hair, and you're like, oh fuck. But when they're on, you're like, dude, this is fucking bitching. And so what, because the masks have evolved over the years, obviously. So I'm curious mm. as to what your input has been on that. Maybe it has it reflected your mentality. Like what contributions have you made to the evolution of the masks and yours? In well, particular? We all, we all designed our own. We all kind of thought up, not that that's like genius or some shit. Um, mm. but we certainly had our own personal touch. And then on the last record, we didn't do them. Um, and a lot of people didn't like that, but the truth is the real reason is we didn't have anywhere to go. And we were like, I don't want to do this just to do it. We didn't want to do it just for the sake of it. Um, and until we could figure out like what we want to do with them that adds to it, you know, so we kind of, we hit a, a dead end, I guess, where we just couldn't figure out where we were going with it. So we said, you know what, let's just not wear them and then bring them back when we can think of something, you know, we don't want to do them dirty and be cheap about it where it's like, Hey, you could sell more t-shirts. If your masks are on them, you should wear, you know, it's like, no. Um, so we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with that. We've been in touch with Constantine again, the dude who makes them, but yeah, everybody gets to sit down with them and you can draw up these different ideas. Now, of course your canvas is, you know, the size of your face. So it's not like there's a ton of, uh, directions you can take. Um, but 
you know, we're trying to think of something like on the on five, which was two records ago, we all matched them up. So like the colors and the backdrop colors and all the little things matched up between the masks. That was like the first time we had done that, um, which was really cool. So we're just trying to figure it out. But yeah, man, um, they're always very, very appealing to me in a cool part of the band. And um, yeah, you know, you could do a bunch of coke and they, you put a mask on. No one saw all the white and shit on your in your nostrils. You didn't have to worry about that. It was beautiful. There was a utilitarian aspect to it, too. Yeah, they're That's like, check. I'm like, sorry, dude, mask. Can't. <laughs> Those must have been some wild times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can reference back to that. I, you know, speaking, speaking to your personal life again, then let's talk about your move to Nashville. Yeah. Um, I'd like, I'd love to hear about your thought process behind that. I'm from Georgia, obviously, as I mentioned, live in LA, but you know, I'm, I'm a Southern guy at heart. I want to just hear you. Yeah. Let's talk on it. Well, I mean, I think for me, it was more, um, I grew up in LA, LA, real LA, and it's not a place for kids and stuff like that. So, um, I have three children and uh, where I grew up, certainly not a place where you would voluntarily want to raise kids. Although it's a lot better now. A lot of the hipsters have moved in and gentrified like half of it. So it's still mm -hmm. half cholos and then dudes who look like, uh, you know, from the J crew catalog or with, with their cowboy. I don't know what the fuck they're up to. Um, latte bars and stuff. But it, it certainly wasn't like that then. But, you know, I think for me, a lot of it, um, was it was time for a change i started really thinking about when i was trying to clean my life up you when you're in an area where everything reminds you of things and everybody you know still is engaged in you know i needed like a clean break to really uh to to change you know what i mean it's really tough when you still hang out with half the dudes who sold you drugs or half the people you used to do this stuff with or that stuff with um so for me, that was a big part of it was kind of just changing my environment. And L.A. has a lot of awesome things about it. I still miss I still We still work out there all the time. I'm going out yeah. there Thursday, and I was just out there two weeks ago. We were, still record all our music there. Some of the guys still live there. But for me, it was just kind of – Nashville, it's funny because everybody's moving here. For me, it was just fucking random. So when we were moving, we I had never spent any time anywhere but L.A. except for touring, you know, but which is, you know, you're there for an afternoon – you wake up, you play, and you leave. Usually, that's the normal schedule. But a drummer of ours had moved here. And I was talking about movies. Like, oh, you should move here. I We had played Nashville, but I didn't know anything about it. Um, So we literally kind of picked a spot on the map and just went. It had nothing wow. to do with music or anything else. And when I moved here, that was before this mad rush, you know? So oh, yeah, it okay. wasn't like a, I was part of, like, there when I moved here and I was from LA, people were like, Oh, what are you doing here? Kind of thing. <laughs> now it's everywhere. So exactly. I kind of, I was ahead of the curve on that purely on accident, but you know, we thought of going to like Phoenix and Dallas and these different places. Um, but Nashville was just kind of like, okay, let's go there. And you know, it worked out. Um, not to say that we're going to, we'll never go back to California. I think about it sometimes, but you know, California is pretty fucked up in a lot of ways. And the, it's just ridiculous. You got to be a gazillionaire to live there in, in any kind of like nice way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just fucking, it's lunacy. So who knows? We'll see how that all goes, but um, it's not probably the, no, wouldn't be my first pick now. Plus now I'm used to being around all this green stuff. I think they're called yes. trees, Ooh. you know, rolling yeah. fields and shit and streams in them. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dude, I feel like I'm in Hobbiton. Why do I want to go back to Mordor? <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a perfect that's a perfect way to describe it. Wow, I never considered that because you know, yes, once you become exposed to that that greenery, it changes your whole mental outlook. Yeah, like right? clean air and stuff. And I never knew, you know, I was so used to living in um like uh you know like a rat box where it's just like yeah. there's so many people that the tension's really high um there and like i said there's a lot of things to love i love the beach and we used to be able to go fucking you go to the beach and snowboard in the same fucking day i don't know of a lot of places like that yeah um and you know there's tons of stuff to do and of course if you're a musician or you're in the entertainment world it's it, it serves a purpose in that sense but nowadays everybody makes music from there out you don't need a million dollar studio to make music anymore so that kind of freed a lot of that up um and there's tons of studios here now too i mean i guess the music industry here might even rival that of la now um although it's much more geared towards country stuff but like our our label's office here is fucking bigger than the one in la so that tells you something they got that jason aldean money bro yes um, yeah so it, it's a different world and i got kind of you know i like it it's cool. And um, people are normal. People are down to earth. People are kinder. And, you know, it's a little abrupt at first. People saying hi all the time and shit. You're like, what the fuck? Uh, you know, it's such a random, like, thing. You're like, whoa. Because I remember the place we lived in L.A. We lived there for, like, five years before we moved. Mm -hmm. I I didn't even know my neighbor's names. And they lived there. We wave. Yeah. We're courteous. Mm -hmm. We didn't, But, dude, the first fucking day we came here, my neighbor came out and said, hey, we're going to cook up some chicken y'all want to come over and i was like what the fuck is this guy like what's this guy's deal is he fucking nuts no they're just nice <laughs> it was so weird dude me and my wife got COVID at the same time it was fucking horrible she had to go to the hospital i mean it was bad every day there's like shit on our porch you know a blanket some stew i don't know uh and it was just it's wild because you it know is. you just i just never knew that that existed <laughs> A lot of people don't know. It's interesting. I mean, but again, you have a rare circumstance in that you grew up in LA. A lot of people don't. It's like being from LA or New York is a crazy circumstance. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that really brings us to the last part of the conversation, brother. I think in terms of Hollywood and dead and in terms of where things are now and are headed in the future, I would love to hear you just unpack where things stand, what you've been working on, what you can share. Okay, well, we're back in the studio. We're recording now. We just got back uh, from a session in L.A. Um, we're going to be doing that, getting songs together. We're, we're actually in the, in the process of changing labels. So we were going out there to meet, you know, meet different labels, you know, figure out what the hell we want to do with that. Um, and then my, my, the funny thing is I'm, that I've been working on the three tiers thing I said was my first band. I'm, bring, I'm doing that again. So I'm recording some heavier music because I do a folk project called Dead Sun that, uh, but that's just really acoustic singer songwriter stuff. So I've been wanting to do some heavy stuff. So I've been working on that in the interim and while we were touring, you know, when we tour, we typically don't record because we get sick of each other. It's really sure. hard to like tour and then go, okay, now let's go sit in the fucking room together after sitting on the bus. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've been doing that. And then, yeah, we just started, that was our first session for whatever it is we're up to now. Um, we got a actually one of my favorite songs we've done in a long time. So we're back at it, back in the studio. And, um, you know, we'll see what the future holds. But certainly new music. And um, we're going on tour in the summer. I don't think I'm allowed to say anything about it. Mm. Um, they got all these fucking wacky rules. Dude, I love doing it anyway. And getting them all, my managers all fucking heated up. Um, and then ignoring their calls and shit, dude, just to be passive aggressive. That's the cokehead in me, dude. No. Um, but, uh 
yeah, we got a tour this summer and yeah, new music. We're working on new music. So very exciting. Um, I love working with the guys now. Um, we, we tend to, we've been writing a lot more as a group. We used to kind of do our own little thing and then kind of come together um, with skeletons, but now it's more of, you know, it's a good atmosphere. So we're like 20 years in now and uh, it's cool. We get along better now and we enjoy writing together more now. We're lucky we made it through the part where you hate each other yeah. and got out the other side. Most people never make it through that. Um, that's usually when they, you know, they break up and they're doing interviews 10 years later, like, fuck that guy. We made it through all that and uh, we were very close not to, but it's, 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 uh, it's easy sailing now and we're enjoying writing new music and um, seeing what the future, the future brings. 100%. Well, it's an ama amazing legacy. I mean, you have an amazing legacy. The band has an amazing legacy. And, you know, I'm looking forward to it just on a personal level. You know, I'm looking forward to what you guys do. So, I, Dude, I got to ask you, how did so you were raised in Georgia? You're yeah. based in L.A. What are you doing in Mexico City? I come here often because just like you, I saw another side to the world. I came here during the pandemic and I just said, man, uh, you know, and I spend a few months out of the year here. I go back to LA and then I'll just chill here. It's crazy. I love it there, dude. You know, one weird thing, we went down there years ago and I was all excited. This is no secret now to get some nice Coke. And I'm like, okay. we're fucking Mexico. All right. Because all the shit that we bought in LA was off the cartel dudes. It was bricks. It was good stuff. Now we're in the source. And this, it was like the worst blow in the fucking world. And I was like, what are you sending all the good shit to the gringos? You don't save any, anything. And so we're getting these sacks. They're like 25 bucks, but they smelled like a banana. Like they put baby powder in them. So they smelled good. I'm like, dude, I want to smell the fucking Coke. It was very frustrating to say the least. But I did get high enough where the next day we went to the airport because we stayed in an airport hotel and I was so strung out. Yeah, we're that area is wild. Go on though. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had a guitar with me in uh, a bag, and I was so I felt like people were watching me, mm. which was what this stuff does to you. That I gave my guitar because I thought that was like the red flag to mm. our lighting guy, and I said, "Hey, you can have this guitar." And it was a Martin guitar; it was a nice guitar. It's like what? I was like, yeah. "Just keep it," because I thought they were staring at me because the guitar, and they're going to search me, and I was going <laughs> to. And then anyway, I made it home out of a guitar, all because of uh, some nasty coke. Damn it. The food was good, though. The food was great. It still is. I think that's the good news. And if you guys play here, I'll make a trip to Mexico just to see you Dude, guys. we keep planning it. We were going to go down because Papa Roach goes, they're our boys. And we tour a lot yeah. with them here and in Europe. And we're planning on it. You know, obviously, the, the COVID years, even though things are like normal, they're not. Mm -hmm. Everything's kind of out of whack still. Like mm -hmm. the wheels all stopped. And now everybody's still trying to figure out like, uh everybody went on tour all at the same fucking time because everybody's oh, yeah. sitting around waiting mm -hmm. and so it's kind of been a, a clusterfuck getting everything to where it works and stuff again um so we should be down there soon i'd love to go down i love going to mexico um it's a it's one of my favorite spots that's one place if i didn't have like you know my obligations here i would move there in a heartbeat because it's just so pretty and people that's another place people are so friendly yeah, it's just like the world outside of L.A. and New York. Once you actually expose yourself to it, a lot of people aren't willing to do it. But I think like you and I, once you expose yourself to it, it is amazing. Yeah, and then you can't go back. Yeah, You're like, dude, you people can. are dicks. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, I'm totally with you all. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out with us today, man. I appreciate you so much for doing this my, anytime, interview. Anytime, dude. My pleasure, man. I'm glad I, I saw I, – I, I didn't know, and I looked, and I was like, oh, this, this guy's dope. He has good stuff. So some of the podcasts <laughs> are fucking 
lame, but this was good. You got, you're good. You're good at what you do. Keep doing it. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that vote of confidence. And thank you so much for being here, man. Oh, my pleasure.